my friend, Pastor Will Sanchin, shares a story, one of my favorite stories that he shares of visiting a, a little church while on a missions trip to Guatemala while he was uh, the pastor over at Evangel Church. Uh, this little church that they visited is located under a bridge at the bottom of a deep ravine. And he describes it as it's a, it's, it's a place that it seems like the valley floor only sees a few hours of sunlight each day. And in fact, it, it seems to be in this perpetual sense of darkness, which seems so fitting to its reputation as being the worst crime-ridden, unsafe neighborhood of the area, the worst part of town. Uh, locals warn them to be alert while in the area because it's controlled by drug dealers and crime lords, and even the police feared for their safety and would refuse to go in there. And as they were visiting this little church, and they would, they would hold services, and, and after finishing their evening services, the team would head back to their base in the, the darkness of the night skies as, as darkness settled in. And Will recounts looking back down into the valley and seeing how the smallest flickers of light would pop out into the dark night sky. So you could see little cooking fires and the faint light of dim light bulbs throughout the valley. And the brightest light of all was the cross that sat on top of the roof of the little church that they had just visited. Right there in the middle of town, penetrating the darkness, shining bright for all to see across the valley, was a symbol of Jesus' love for all of humanity. Will describes this as a, a profound moment for their team, that they could travel thousands of miles from home, be in the middle of the proverbial nowhere, in a neighborhood that has been forgotten, that has been overrun with criminals and darkness. And in the midst of it all, find that the gospel is present and shining brightly. And Jesus shares something very similar with his disciples in Matthew 16, 13 to 18. The scriptures say this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. These verses are known as the great confession, and more theology has been written on these verses than any other passage of Scripture. Our current series is called Words to Live By. And the words that I want to look at today are Jesus' promise to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Just like that little church in Guatemala that continues 
to shine light into the darkness surrounding it. Jesus says, I will build my church and the darkness will not stop it. His kingdom will advance. Everything Jesus does has meaning behind it. He's very intentional. And it's no accident that he brings his disciples to this area, to this region, when he gives them this teaching. Caesarea Philippi had a long history of paganism and celebrating the overindulgences of the Greco-Roman culture. Pleasures of the world, overindulging in those things, those excesses, living without restraint, focusing on self. Before the Roman Empire took over this area and renamed it Caesarea Philippi, it was a prominent city in the Greek Empire named Peneus. The city was named after the Greek god Pan. And Pan was depicted as having the hindquarters and legs of a goat and was believed to have lived in the caves and the rocky cliff sides of the area that surrounded Peneus. Pan was the companion of the nymphs. And he was the god of fertility who was worshipped through licentious sexual acts that highlighted the depravity and the lowest points of the human soul. The residents of Peneus would worship Pan by having sex with goats in the temple caves and then sacrificing them to spill their blood on the rocks. Now, I know that's shocking to hear, and you didn't know that church was going to be PG-13 today. I understand if that's distasteful and offensive. And yet, as difficult as it is for us to try to reconcile that kind of darkness and depravity, it's important that we acknowledge that it was common information of the day. And Jesus and his disciples would have known about it. And this is the place Jesus chose to bring his disciples to make this claim and this promise that the church of Jesus is going to advance and the darkness will not prevent it and will not hold it back. Most scholars believe Jesus brought the disciples to this place because it was considered the darkest spiritual region of the day. Depending on which translation you have, the, the verses may read something like the gates of hell or the gates of Hades shall not prevail, will not prevail, shall not stand. And the more accurate translation is to actually use the word Hades. Christians have used the word hell more synonymous with that, and that picked up some speed as the Christian church was more established. But really, to fit into the Greek culture, we understand this is represented as Hades, the Greeks believed that Hades was the dark underworld. It represented the murky post-mortem place of death, disease, and evil. All things evil and nasty went to Hades. And Greek mythology stated that the god of Pan, who was the god over this region, would retreat to Hades each winter. 
before re-emerging in the spring in his role as the God of fertility to bring new life. New flowers, new crops, spring life would begin to pop and they would believe that this was, uh, that this was the God of Pan returning from the winter season in Hades. And this is when they would begin to worship him in the rocks and the caves of the area. And this is where things get even more interesting. The Greeks believed the entrance to Hades was a prominent cave up in the cliffs in the hillsides of Caesarea Philippi. It's very possible that the rocky cliffs and the fabled gateway to Hades were in view of the disciples when Jesus said, you are Peter and upon this rock, not the rocks up there that received the spilled blood and grew this following of people, but this rock, Peter and his confession in Jesus, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. That they actually were this place that they could likely see. Jesus says that evil, that darkness, that nastiness, all that that represents in our world will not prevail. Jesus brings his disciples to the place of greatest spiritual darkness and says, look around. Not even this can stop the gospel. The indulgences of Rome, the depravity of pan worship, the gates of Hades and all that it represented will not overcome the kingdom of God. And think about this, gates are actually a protective barrier. Gates were designed and built and put into place to keep the enemy out. When it says the gates of Hades will not prevail, Jesus is saying the light of the gospel, the life, the resurrection life will go in and penetrate and get new territory, new ground. It will go into the darkest of places. There is nowhere the light and the love of Jesus cannot go. And today, the caves around Peneus are silent. And no one can be found worshiping Pan. The scariest thing about the gateway to Hades is how long the lineups are to get a photo in front of it. If you visit the area today, Caesarea Philippi lies in ruins. The Greek Empire is gone. The Roman Empire is gone. But the Church of Jesus has expanded into every corner of the globe. And here we are, 2,000 years later, gathered in a warehouse in the middle of nowhere, worshiping Jesus as the church. You can find the church in the bottom of a crime-ridden ravine in Guatemala, and you can find the church in living rooms and basements all across communist China. There's a gospel presence in Asia, Africa, and Australia. The church is active in war-torn regions in the Middle East and Europe. The light of Jesus shines into the darkest corners of the world, and millions, perhaps we could use the word billions of believers, have gathered across the globe this very weekend to celebrate and lift up Jesus and his resurrection life. 
and our spiritual lineage, every one of us who holds faith in Jesus, every one of us who says, I'm a part of the church, I believe in Jesus, I'm a part of his kingdom, we trace our roots back to this moment when Jesus points to the darkness and he points to the nastiness and he points to the depravity and he says, this, not even this, will hold back. Even the gates of hell will not hold us back. The gospel will advance. The kingdom of God will go forward. Two years ago, we were in total lockdown for Easter. And uh, I began to wonder if our church would survive. I remember thinking it was a, like uh, middle of March and April was coming and Easter was coming. And they said, well, well maybe we'll, we'll be closed down for a few weeks until this thing blows over. We all remember that. And uh, we all did it. And, um, and then I remember thinking, oh God, are we not going to be able to meet for Easter? How will the church ever survive if we can't get together and have our smoke machine going for Easter? <laughs> like, what will, the, what will that mean? And I actually, as things set in and the unknown came and the uncertainty and all those things, and I, I, I began to wonder if our church would survive. We had had such momentum and such life. In fact, uh, March of 2020, we were planning our very first Good Friday service. We hadn't had one up until then. And we were able to have our first Good Friday service just a few days ago. And it was powerful and amazing. And I began to wonder what would happen to our church, our little church, like are we going to be able to keep paying the lease on the building and are we going to keep going and how do we care for people and how do we reach them and what's going to happen? And, and, and here we are a couple of years later. And you know 2021 was our biggest giving year ever? We doubled our missions giving. We doubled our pastoral staff. We've got a growing youth ministry for the first time. We've got a vibrant kids ministry. We had kids running around all over the place today. We've dedicated 12 children since January. We've baptized people the last three worship gatherings that we've had as a community. We've had some couples get engaged and others get married. We have more people involved in small groups than ever before. And I'm humbled and I'm astounded and I'm reminded of these words that mean more to me now than they did a few years ago. That Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. The darkness and the opposition and the obstacles, though they will come, are not greater. The good news of Jesus is bigger than a political party or a government policy. The good news of Jesus is not dependent on the economy. The power of the gospel is released in you and I answering this one question. And what about you? Who do you say I am? When Jesus gathers his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, he asks the disciples, who do people say he is? 
And then he asks them, which is perhaps the most important question of all time. And what about you? Who do you say I am? And that question continues to sit over our lives. I'm going to ask the band to come, and they're going to get ready to lead us in a, in a worship song as we get ready to close. But I love that Jesus says, okay, there's lots of ideas out there about me. Who, who are people saying about me? And he gets all the news. And then he stops in front of Hades, in front of evil and darkness and everything else. And he says, and what about you? Who do you say I am? The Apostle Peter answers, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is the great confession of faith. This is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. And some 2,000 years later, Jesus is still asking each and every one of us that same question. It is without a doubt, the greatest question any one of us will be asked, the greatest question any of us will answer. It will shape the entire course of our life. How you answer that question when Jesus looks at you and says, and who do you say I am, will impact and give direction to every choice in your life. 1 Corinthians 1.18 reads, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus would say, and who do you say I am? And there's all kinds of answers. And, and if that answer is not right, if that's the wrong answer, you can dismiss Jesus and who he is and the significance of who he is and his kingdom and all that he represents and all that he accomplishes. But the moment you say you are Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Savior of the world, you turn your life to Him. You open your heart to Him. You welcome Him in. And transformation begins to happen. That was true for Peter and the disciples that day with Jesus. It's true for those who are in the waters of baptism today that at some point, at some moment, made the decision to point their life to Jesus and say, you are the Messiah, the chosen one, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And I open my heart to you. It's true for you. It's true for the person calling the church right now. I want to pray. I want you to just sit. Would you just, I just invite you. Would you just, just sit for a moment. Close your eyes, open your heart, and just ponder that one question of Jesus 
once again asking each one of us, and who do you say I am? Have you opened your heart to him? Have you answered with confusion? You don't know who he is. You don't believe. You're filled with atheism, cynicism, doubt. You Maybe he seems far. He seems distant. Maybe there's more confusion there. Peter's confession is the confession we all make. It's the confession that, Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are who you say you are. I believe in you. You can actually pitch your life, tilt your life towards Jesus and open up your heart to him. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We remember, we celebrate the cross and the resurrection. We remember the message that you brought to a small group of young adult men standing in front of the cliffsides in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus, you promised that the gates of Hades would not prevail, that evil and darkness would not have its way, and that the gospel, that the kingdom of God would advance and would not be stopped. And here we are today, and it is as true as it has ever been. And though kingdoms would come and fall, yours continues on. And we thank you. We celebrate with you. We thank you for the living room in China with a small group of Christians hushed, worshiping and praying. We thank you and we worship you for the little churches under bridges in Guatemala who continue to shine their light into the darkness. Our world is full of pain and difficulty. And I pray, God, that you would help the church rise up with courage and fervor wherever they would be found around our globe. We pray for our country. Lord, we pray that you would raise up the church in Canada, that you would stir up something new, that we would proclaim the hope and the life in Jesus loudly and boldly, that people would open their heart, churches would be stirred, churches would be rekindled. We pray for those in our city Lord, give our pastors in our city courage. Stir something up in the church in Kelowna. For those that may be struggling, we pray you would give them hope, direction, future, breakthroughs. For those that are succeeding and doing well, we celebrate. We bless those works, those ministries. And even now in Kelowna, even now in our city, Jesus, we know churches and believers are gathered and celebrating. And we pray that there would be wind on that fire. Let us not be afraid 
of the darkness. Jesus, may you be our hope. In your name, amen. Amen.